I'm very thankful for the songs that Bryant picks, and I think they went really well with what we'll be discussing this morning. Um, talking about how to really, honestly, to, to, to treasure the words of Jesus, especially when they're difficult and they're hard. Uh, but I want to start us off with a story about Jesus and his youth. So if you turn to Luke chapter 2, we'll get our context and, and get the lesson this morning kicked off there. So in Luke chapter 2. If you're in Luke chapter 2, if you'd like to start in verse 41 with me. Now his parents, being Jesus, uh, went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he became twelve, they went up there according to the custom of the feast. And as they were returning, after spending the full number of days, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. But his parents were unaware of it. But stopped, but supposed him to be in the caravan, and went a day's journey. And they began looking for him among their relatives and acquaintances. When they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem looking for him. Then after three days, they found him in the temple, sitting in the midst of the teachers, both listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. When they saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us this way? Behold, your father and I have been anxiously looking for you. And he said to them, Why is it that you are looking for me? Did you not know that I had to be in my father's house? But they did not understand the statement which he had made to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth, and he continued in subjection to them. And his mother treasured all these things in her heart. There's a situation where Jesus and his family, it seems like a whole group of them, have gone up to Jerusalem for the Passover, as that happens um, yearly for them. And they go. And so Mary and Joseph and the caravan leave, supposing that Jesus is with them. They're a days away journey, and they look for Jesus, and they can't find him. And so you imagine, um, lots of us here are parents, <laughs> so you imagine just the sheer panic and the fear and the fright, <laughs> and imagine that, oh, he's with us, and you look, and he's not. And so you imagine just, just the angst that they have. So they go a whole day's journey away. So you've got to think. Now they've got to go a whole day's journey back to Jerusalem. And you imagine once they get to Jerusalem, they do not find him immediately. The text tells us they spend three days looking for Jesus. So you imagine what it is looking for him for a whole day. You can't find him. And, and I don't imagine that Joseph and Mary got a lot of sleep those three days. So you imagine just the angst and the anxiety and the fear and the worry and the fright that they have. They aren't sleeping probably very well for those three days. And, and after three tireless days, they, they finally find Jesus. And of all places, they find him within the temple. And they're, they're amazed. They're, marvel, they're marveling at what they see. He's, he's just sitting there amongst the teachers. He's talking to them, asking them questions, saying things. Other people are amazed at what he's saying. And then they come to Jesus. And they ask, why, why have you done this to us? We've been anxiously looking for you. You imagine there's a bunch of days, a bunch of lost time uh, that they've lost looking for Jesus, coming back and going all throughout the city. So you imagine the worry and the fright that they have and just all, all the, the anxiety about all the situation. Verse 49, Jesus tells them, why are you, why are you even looking for me? I, I, did you not know I needed to be in my father's house? Other texts will translate that, uh, be about my father's business. And so you just imagine that this worry, this fright, this angst that you have, and you come to Jesus and he tells you you shouldn't have been looking for me in the first place. So you imagine... Uh, possibly, I don't know, this uh, text obviously doesn't say this, but you imagine, you know, Joseph in the back of his mind, imagine there's some sort of punishment that's about to come to this kid. He's, he's <laughs> so don't, don't even worry about me. Um, but Mary does something very special, does something very different here. So um, they don't understand what he's saying, and he goes back to them, uh, back with them to Nazareth. They make it back home. Um, and verse 51, the text tells us, Mary, Jesus' mother, she treasures these things in her heart. This has been a dif difficult and, and anxious, a fearful, uh, all sorts of mix of emotions, all sorts of lost time. 
And Mary chooses to treasure these things. She holds them near and dear within her heart. That word that's used for treasure there is a really special word, and it's only used twice in the New Testament and the Bible in general. Um, we find it only used twice here in Luke chapter 2, earlier in verse 19, where the shepherds come to Mary, and, and she's confused by these things that are going on. They say all these things to her, but she treasures those anyways. And right here, that word um, is, and I will try to pronounce this correctly, uh, deatario, uh, which means, it's a verb, it's a Greek word, which means to keep carefully or continually. So these things happen, these things go on, and Mary chooses to not forget them, be angry about them, upset. Uh, she chooses to, to treasure them. She chooses to hold in her heart and to continue to remember them carefully and continually. And so I want that to essentially be the theme of this lesson. Uh, I said it just a little bit earlier. How do we learn to treasure the words of Jesus, especially like the situation that Mary and Joseph went through when it was difficult? That was not an easy time for Jesus to be their son. They lost a bunch of days and have all sorts of emotions going on. But how do we do the same? And so I want that to just really be the focus of the lesson this morning. How do we treasure the words of Jesus? And I want this to be the main question before we start getting into uh, some more passages and getting into the points and, and you know, the meat of the lesson. I want us to ask ourselves this question right now and throughout the lesson, and after lesson, afterwards, is do we really treasure Jesus and his word, especially when it's hard, it's challenging, and sometimes when it's difficult to understand? Do we take the time and the effort to do what Mary did, to keep those words carefully and continually, when sometimes it's not the easiest to do so. So, treasure the words of Jesus. All right, so the first point this morning is just understanding and realizing that following Jesus is not a, a walk in the park, is not a cakewalk, is not an easy thing to do. If you turn to Luke chapter 14, this is something that Jesus liked to constantly do with people, especially people who were continually following after him, or times when he accumulated large crowds of people that were following after Jesus. Um, you look at Luke 14, and starting in verse 25, uh, Jesus would do very interesting things. He would warn people. He would remind people. He would challenge people about them following him. So you look at verse 25 of Luke 14. Now large crowds were going along with them, and he turned and said to them, um, we'll read 26 to 27, we won't read all of this. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. So you imagine Jesus got this large uh, mass and crowd of people accumulated. Uh, they're following after him. And he turns and he tells them some very hard, difficult things. You need to hate your whole family. If you don't do that, you can't be my disciple. And Jesus doesn't qualify what it means to hate. He doesn't, he doesn't explain exactly what he means. I don't think he, he means you, know, you, you detest and you despise your family. That's not exactly what he's meaning here. He doesn't qualify. He just lets them hear it. You have to hate him or else you can't be my disciple. He tells them in verse 27, if you don't even carry your own cross, you cannot come after me and be my own disciple. He, he doesn't qualify what that means either. He just lets it be out there. Those are hard and difficult things to understand, hard and difficult things to do. And then Jesus even goes on within the context of the lesson here, uh, this, this conversation here that he has, always in the chapter, but really to verse 33, he begins to then challenge them with a couple of different examples and, and, and asking them the question, have you actually considered the cross? And Jesus brings up this example, starting in verse 28. If, if someone's building a tower, do they not consider how much it's going to cost, all the resources that are involved, how long it takes? There's many of us here who have definitely done renovation projects, built houses, built things. Uh, you tally up how much the supplies are going to cost. You tally up how long it's going to take. What are the resources that we're going to need to pull it together so that you can accomplish it? Jesus brings up that example. If someone's building a tower, they, they do everything they possibly can to consider the cost the cost. 
That's the same question for them. Do they consider the cost? Um, he brings up another example beginning in verse 31. You've got a king who has 10,000 who's coming to meet another king who has 20,000. Um, doesn't he sit down and consider, well, how am I going to work this out? How am I going to consider to be able to, to come out on top of this situation when I have less men at my disposal than this other king that I'm coming against? Or, and, and if he can't figure it out, what does he do? He goes and tries to make forms and, and, and petitions to make a treaty and to make peace with that king before anything happens. So he brings up these examples that, that when something big is happening, something that's very valuable, something that's very precious, something that involves a lot, you consider what it's going to take to get to that end goal. And Jesus is asking them the same question and is trying to, to, to put in their minds, have you considered what it really, really takes to follow after me? And verse 33 answers kind of the question you may be asking, well, well then Jesus, what does it take to follow after you? What, what is the cost that I have to give up? Jesus answers that in verse 33 when he tells them. So then none of you can be my disciples who does not give up all his own possessions. He tells them you have to give it up all. Everything's got to go. Does that necessarily mean that we need to go sell our houses, sell our cars, sell our assets? That's, that's not what Jesus is saying. But we, we need to realize that it's, it's, it's very well going to cost us everything that we absolutely have. We cannot be attached to those things. Um, so Jesus would do this. Um, you look back in verse, uh, not verse, chapter 9, flip over chapter 9 really quickly of Luke. Um, Jesus does the same thing with another crowd of people that have accumulated and have begun to follow after him here. He challenges them with what is it, what is it really like to follow after him? Um, you look at Luke 9, starting in verse 23, and Jesus says there, and he was saying to them all, verse 23 of Luke 9, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake, he is the one who will save it. For what is a man profited if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory, in the glory of his Father and of the holy angels. But I say to you truthfully, there are some of those standing here who will not chase death until they see the kingdom of God. You look further on into Luke chapter 9, beginning in verse 57. And you have some people who, who Jesus is asking him to follow after him. Other people are coming up to Jesus saying, I'm going to follow after you. You look at verse 57. They're coming along the road. Someone comes up and tells Jesus, well, I will follow you wherever you go. Wherever you go, Jesus, I will be there. doesn't matter where you're at, I will be there. And, and Jesus turns to him. You know, he says to him, in, beginning in verse 58, the foxes have holes. And the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Try and challenge, do you realize what it means to follow me? There will not be a guarantee of comfort. There's another one who uh, Jesus t turns to someone else and tells him, follow after me. And uh, this, this man who he asks to follow after me, he says, well, Lord, permit me first to go and bury my father. And then Jesus tells him, allow the dead to bury their own dead. Uh, later on, verse 61, another person comes up and says, I will follow you, Lord, but... First permit me to say goodbye to those at home. And then Jesus tells them in verse 62, No one after putting his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. I find it amazing that Jesus takes these times within his ministry while he's going about, while crowds are accumulating, people are coming up. And you know, imagine that you're, you're a follower, you're a teacher, you've got a new movement, someone says, I'll follow you. You're like, great, you'll do everything you can to keep them. Jesus does everything he can to let people know that how hard it will be. He does everything he can to actually turn people away because of how difficult it is. I think that's, that's one of the things when it comes to following after Jesus that we have to understand. It's, it's going to be challenging. It's not going to be easy. It's going to be hard. And Jesus himself lets people know about that. And there's also lots of times within Jesus' ministry and Jesus' life and his teaching that we see. There's times when Jesus is even speaking and he's, he's, he's talking to people. And he'll turn, go ahead and turn over to John chapter 6 where people are quite confused at the things that he's bringing up. People are quite confused at the things that he's saying. 
And you look at John chapter 6, uh, we'll start our, uh, we won't read this whole section here of 41 to 52, but we'll just look at a couple places in 41 to 52. Um, but this context comes after, at the beginning of John chapter 6, Jesus already fed the 5,000. He's got a, a massive crowd of people that have begun to follow after him. It's the next day that um, after Jesus walked on the water, it's, it's the next day, the morning has come. These people want to come to Jesus. They rush, rush to him. They want to make him a king. And Jesus begins to, he's got this massive group of people. And he begins to, to tell them of what it's really like. What, what is he really doing? What is he really accomplishing? He tells them in verse 26, Truly I say to you, you seek me, not because you saw the signs, but because you ate of loaves and were filled. He tells me, you're greedy. You want food out of me. You don't want what I'm actually offering you. You get to verse 41 after Jesus has been uh, speaking for a while. Uh, verse 41 of Ch- John chapter 6. Therefore the Jews were grumbling about him because he said, I am the bread that came down out of heaven. They were saying, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down out of heaven? So Jesus is talking, he's speaking, he's the one who's been performing miracles, and he says something that they're confused at, and they're immediately, wait, wait, wait hold up a minute. This, this is just Joseph's son. This is, we, we know his mom, we know his dad. This isn't somebody who's come from heaven. Uh, this, this is somebody we know very, very well, a man that is just like, just like us. He's, he's nothing better than we are. You continue going on the context, Jesus uh, um, keep speaking to them. You get to verse 52. And then uh, an argument starts actually amongst the crowd, amongst the Jews here. Verse 52. Then the Jews began to argue with one another, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? There's another thing that Jesus said that's really hard, that's really difficult. And you're confused. Well, what in the world does Jesus mean here? And so Jesus keeps saying these things. People are still confused. You look at verse 59. This is not just things that Jesus said to this crowd particularly. This is the, this is the way that Jesus taught. Look at verse 59. These things he said in the synagogues as, he's taught, as he taught in Capernaum. This, is, this was Jesus' teaching. This was his ministry. He spread this to everyone that he went to. And you see, eventually you get uh, verse 60. Therefore, many of his disciples, when they heard this said, this is a difficult statement. Who can listen to it? Um, you go later on down. Jesus speaks and responds. And then eventually gets to verse 66. As a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. It doesn't say people who were interested in Jesus. It doesn't say people who, who thought Jesus was cool. Or they, were in, they, they were intrigued by him. It was his disciples. These were people who had chosen to follow after him, to follow after him, to be dedicated to his teaching. And they run into things that are difficult, that they don't understand. They're confused by what Jesus is saying. They're confused by who Jesus is saying that he is. And he chooses to stop following him because of that. I think Jesus was very well-intentional with this. <laughs> Jesus many times, oftentimes, would say hard, say difficult things to confuse people, to show them. And to challenge them, are they willing to be consistent, even when they don't fully understand? To understand that, that following Jesus is not an easy thing. It's going to require a lot out of us when it becomes difficult to apply. It can be very easy when we see it's, it's going to be a hard thing to apply. It's going to cost us things. It's very easy to say, well, it's too much. I, I don't want to have anything to do with it. Or I don't have, want anything to do with that particular part of following Jesus. A lot of times we can be very hypocritical. Oh, we'll follow all the way, we'll do all the things, but this one thing over here, this one passage over here, I, I just really don't agree with that. I'll just skip over it. It's just too hard for me, and it's just too real for me to read. I don't want to deal with that. It comes to times when Jesus is, the words are confusing. I'm sure many of us, there's probably parts of the Bible, passages when, and, and, and scripture that we get to, we're like, man, I just, I have no idea what that means. I have no idea what that's saying. And we can be very easily tempted to just like, ah, you know, it's not even really that important to not want to understand it. A lot of times you get to people, you, you, you teach with them, you, you teach them, you talk with them, you have conversations with them. You get to things that, that some passages, are just, uh, just, you know, just, 
It's really hard for me to understand. You tell them, well, you've, you've got to take the time to do so. Uh, you know, I don't really want to take the time. This is going to require me to s- make sacrifices within my life. I'm going to have to move things over within my life to sit down and to read this, sit down and to study this. It, it, this takes way too much. You see the reaction that people had to Jesus when they came to confusing words. They just chose to stop following after him. And so I think that's a reality we need to understand. A lot of times we have teaching in the world that, that talks about the beauty of following after Jesus, the beauty of how, of, of, of how amazing it is to be a disciple, how amazing it is to be a follower of Christ. It's just so easy. All these things are handed to you. And you get to Jesus' actual ministry, and he's turning people way left and right because they don't have what it requires. They don't have what it takes. We need to rea- re- realize that. When we call ourselves Christians, when we aim to be followers of Jesus, it requires sacrifice. And there's going to be a lot of times that we're going to run into passages places within scripture that are going to be really, really difficult. I'm sure there's many of us that know of stories of brethren who, are, who were in marriages that should not have been in. Marriages, when they, when they came to the truth, when they, when they understood Jesus' teaching on marriage and divorce and remarriage and baptism, they came to understanding they were in marriages they should not have been. And they made the choice, the hard and difficult choice, to leave those marriages and to break up that family because that was not right in God's eyes. You have times many people have come out of really difficult situations, hard addictions that they have, hard, difficult habits that they're faced with with having to change. And so as we think about the difficulty of following Jesus, the, the things that we can be confronted with, the passages that can, can be confusing, I think it would be really good to, to then begin to think about, well, how can we practically apply these things that are challenging? How can we really, like Mary did, treasuring the words of Jesus when they were so hard, they are so difficult. How can we begin to do that? So that's the second point I want to talk about. Um, I think one of the first things when it comes to difficult passages with Scripture, when it comes to hard things in general, not even with Scripture, hard things as just human beings, our initial reaction when we're faced with something that's hard and that's difficult is to get up and turn around and, and walk the other way and just to, to, to leave it, to avoid it, to go around it. We don't want to deal with hard and difficult things. That's within our very nature to do so. So I think one of the very first things when we're met with a passage that's hard and difficult. A book that we really need to take time to understand. Maybe a subject or topic where it, it, it scares us, maybe of the implications that are there. I think very, one of the very first things that we need to do is just actually confront it. If it's a book that we're struggling to understand, taking the time to actually read it. If it's a passage or it's a topic that, that, that is confusing, that's hard, that can be a, you know, a hot topic, can be um, a hot-button topic, taking the time to actually study that and form our own opinions upon it. If, it, if it's a question that we have, I remember being... Um, younger and, and, and new in the faith, just, just newly baptized, still very much a babe in Christ. And I remember there's just certain things about the way the assembly was done uh, um, uh, that was just different from anything I'd ever seen out in the world. And there's some times when I was really actually afraid to ask those questions, like, why do we do it this way? Why have, I, why have we here chosen to do that that way? And that was a mistake. And I think a lot of times when it comes to questions, we, we, we can be very scared. to. We, I don't understand why this is going on. We can be scared to look like we're dumb, like <laughs> we're ignorant, we don't know why this is happening, we're scared to, to challenge maybe what's going on at the time. If it's a question, we need to ask it. Um, a lot of times, that reaction that we have is to turn away from things, to, to, to even sometimes fight back. If you look at Acts chapter 7, and we're, you have Stephen that, that is having the sermon before the Jews that are there in Jerusalem, he's teaching them, and it's uh, a very pointed, a very convicted, a very jarring sermon that he has. He's making some very direct and deliberate points to the people that are there. And you look at verse 57 of Acts chapter 7, what the reaction is to do when Stephen is, 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 is he's still talking. Look at verse 57, Acts chapter 7. This is the crowd there, but they cried out with a loud voice, and covered their ears and rushed at him with one impulse. So they stopped their ears because they don't want to hear it. And what do they do? Well, you know, they're tired of hearing it, so we've got we to shut them up. 
And so that's what they do. They end up killing Stephen at the end of this chapter here. You look at Galatians chapter 4, uh, when, when Paul is dealing with a lot of the false teaching that's going on at the, uh, the brethren that are there in the region of Galatia. He, he's dealing with so many different difficult things that are going on, false teaching that's going around, the Judaizing teachers. And Paul in chapter 4 of Galatians, and you look at verse 16, and he asks him this question, so have I become your enemy by telling you the truth? We see that reaction not only in Galatians, we see with the Corinthians that they have. When Paul comes and teaches them the truth, the, the, the adverse reaction that they have towards Paul, the lies they start telling, the, the gossip that starts coming about Paul because they don't like what he's saying. A lot of times that's our reaction is, is when we're met with something, when we're confronted with something. We either attack it, get rid of it, or we turn around and we run the opposite way. Um, there's something that um, therapists and psychologists do that's called therapeutic confrontation. If someone has a irrational fear of something, and I remember watching an episode, uh, this was just a while back, I don't know if it was Animal Planet or some, some other TV show, where uh, there's this guy, gro- full, fully grown man, and he was terrified of kittens. He was absolutely terrified of cats and kittens. He had some bad interaction with one, got scratched by one when he was a baby or something, and so he had this irrational fear. Big old buff, huge dude, and if he saw a little kitten, he would start whimpering and crying because of this, this deep fear. And so what they did over the course of the episode is they just kept putting him in, in different times. Of, of They would put him in a room, and they would let one cat in. And he would, he, would be, he would be upset, and, and, and once he was okay with that, they would let another one in, and another one in, and then eventually, what they did is they, they would put one closer to him, and then um, eventually he cried and freaked out, but eventually later on he got okay with that. So he got to the point where he just kept getting exposed over and over and over again to these cats and these kittens, uh, to the point where he could hold one, he could pet one, and he wouldn't freak out. Um, and, and that's kind of, when I was thinking about that and, and preparing lessons, that's a lot of times... When it comes to difficult places and difficult passages within Scripture, a lot of times what makes it hard is just we have not exposed ourselves to it enough. We have not been around it enough. It is not in our minds. It is not in our hearts. And very easily, we just want to put it out. We don't, we don't like listening to that. We don't, we don't want to think anything about that. It's too challenging. It's too hard. It's too convicting or too confusing. So I think one of the things is we just need to confront whatever is, is, is holding us back, whatever passages fear us or, or are too challenging or convicting. And the spirit also of, of again, thinking back, the idea of Mary treasuring the words of Jesus. We think back to that Greek word, uh, diaterio. The idea of keeping the word continually and carefully. Um, I think one of the really good things about that is when we come to these hard passages, these hard scriptures, these confusing places, one of the things that, that we were just saying, talking about confronting it and, and, and exposing ourselves to it, but we also need to take the time to meditate on those words. We need to take the time to not only just, just, just be around it and just to read it, uh, but to take time to actually study it, to spend time with it, to investigate it. Uh, we really need to meditate and put those words of Jesus within our hearts and within our minds. If you look at James chapter 1, we'll be looking at just a couple passages really, really quickly. Um, you look at James chapter 1, uh, the idea that... that um, James is bringing up here to the brethren when he describes God's word and how to remove immorality and filthiness from them. You look at verse 21 of James chapter 1. Therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness and humility, receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls. Receive the word that's implanted. The idea that scripture needs to be shoved inside of us. It needs to be there. That's where it lives. That's where it resides. You look at uh, Philippians chapter 4. Really briefly and quickly, if you want to flip over there. Beginning Philippians chapter 4, and we start looking at, beginning at verse 8 of Philippians chapter 4. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever whatever is of good repute, 
If there is any excellence, if there is any worthy appraise, dwell on these things, the things you have learned and received and heard and seen in me. Practice these things and the God of peace be with you. This idea that those things that are good, that are great, that come from God's word, we need to spend time meditating on those things. You think about Jeremiah 30, we don't have to turn there. You think about Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 33, this idea that God speaks that he's going to put his law in our minds, he's going to write it on our hearts, and we shall be his people and he shall be our God. This idea that the word dwells, it resides within us. We don't have to turn here at as well, but you think about Psalm 119, it's basically David's love letter to the Word of God. Passages over and over, we don't even have to read the whole thing, is <laughs> about loving and treasuring and meditating and investing and indulging within the Word of God. There's an attitude within Scripture. There's an attitude and expectation that God has of his people that we are going to be consuming God's Word all the time. The idea when we think of the Word continually, really, you think about continually, what also comes to mind with that Word is the idea it's habitual our reading and our love for God's word. It's, it's constant, and the idea that it's really, honestly, should be never-ending. It's something we're constantly and consistently doing. You think about these, these events and these things that happen within Mary's life surrounding raising Jesus as he's uh, you know, uh, just a baby and then an infant, a baby, a toddler, child, and becomes a young man. All these things that she has within her mind, and all these strange events that we have within Scripture, but also there are probably things without, outside of Scripture that Mary decided to, to, to keep them within her heart, to continually be thinking on these things, to meditate upon them. And that's something we need to be doing too, especially, like we've been talking about, when it comes to those challenging parts and passages within Scripture. Another point of thinking about when it comes to trying to really practically treasure the words of God, something that we need to be very careful to do, is again, that word deuterio means to not only continually keep the word of God, or to continually keep something and treasure something and value something, but it also means to carefully keep something. I think that's another thing that can be very difficult, especially when we're faced with passages and scriptures and concepts that are within God's word that are really challenging to us, or sometimes, I, I say we don't agree, but really there's things that we don't like. It can be very easy, very tempting to, you know, just, just, just to change it just a little bit. A passage uses one word, and like, ah, we just get rid of that word, or we change it to a slightly very similar word. Um, if you look at Jude, uh, one of the things that, that, that Jude does a really good job of is really describing where false teaching comes from and where it originates from. Look at Jude chapter 1, and there's only one chapter of Jude, but you look at Jude chapter 1, you look at verse 3, where he, uh, Jude, in his opening remarks, is warning and encouraging the brethren. He says in verse 3 of Jude, Beloved, while I was making every effort to write to you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write to you, appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints. This idea that Jude is really trying to, to warn them and to encourage them that they need to hold fast to the truth that is there. We think about why is that so important? You think about the way Paul describes the church, the way that Paul describes the brethren in 1 Timothy in chapter 3 and verse 15. He describes the church, the brethren that are there as the pillar and the ground of truth. That we ourselves have to be ones to uphold that. And especially Jude, as you go throughout the text of Jude, talks about really where false teaching comes from. Really, where does that originate from? It originates from selfishness. It originates from pride. It originates from a desire of just straight-up disobedience. We hear things we don't like. We hear things we don't want to do. And so we change. We alter. And as, as you go through all these different examples that are within there, of the devil and of, of, of Balaam and Balak, he really cites and brings up these things that it comes from people just disobedient. They did not want to follow after God's word. They heard things that within God's word and they wanted nothing to do with it. And so they twisted, they changed it. That's where Jude says um, the false teaching originates from. You look at, um, also go ahead and turn over to 2 Timothy chapter 3. This idea of understanding the integrity of, of what really is the word of God. What is scripture? 
You look at 2 Timothy chapter 3. You look at verse 16 and 17. All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. This idea that God's word comes straight from him. This, this is not something that, that's, that's made by man, does not originate from man, originates from God himself. So when it comes to keeping God's word when it comes to, 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 to meditating on it, to holding to it. There, again, there's that temptation when we don't like something <laughs> to, to, to think about it just a little bit differently, change the words just up a little bit. But Jude and Paul towards Timothy is, is encouraging them, exhorting them, edifying them, admonishing them to hold fast to integrity of what they've received, to hold fast to what scripture truthfully is. And it can be just a very real temptation to do so. Uh, you think about times, I think about times especially as... Um, as a, as a kid, um, getting chores from my parents and, and them telling me to, they give me a whole list of things to do. They, they're like, do this, do this, do this, and I, I will choose to do the things I did like. And they came up, they have, well, you didn't really listen to me. I was like, yeah, I did. I, I did this and I did this. I did that over there. Well, you didn't do this over here. Oh, I did the rest of it. It can be very easy to just, just very slightly pick the ones that we want and fall away from the ones that we don't want. Um, and that's, that's just a very easy temptation that we can have, especially when it, when it comes to things that are confusing about God's word. Um, there's just so many times you, you talk to people about, about scripture, and you, talk, you go out into the world, you, you discuss things with people, you meet different people, and a lot of times you get faced with, you know, God's, God's word's kind of confusing in some parts. Some parts just straight up just don't make any sort of sense, you know? I, I'd really be a Christian if, you know, if I could read things that would make a lot more sense. Um, there's times I've thought about that, I've thought about arguments against that. Like, how, how do you talk to people when they, when they bring up these passages that you find within Ezekiel, you find within Revelation? You might be faced with times where you don't know actually how to interpret this. You don't know how to return their questions or their answers. And, and you know, God's word just really doesn't make any sense to me. Um, you think about times that, that it actually makes a lot of sense. That if God does exist, that his word is actually, as we just read within 2 Timothy 3, actually breathe out actually is full of inspiration, is inspired by him. It would make a lot of sense that if this really is his words, his thoughts, and his thoughts and his words and his ways are higher than our ways, it makes a lot of sense that it would be challenging to, to apply these things. It would be challenging to understand these things. Because if we come to God's word and we read things and it made perfect sense to us, it was easy to apply, it was no problem to make it just a very slight change and an adjustment within our lives. It's like, oh, okay, I hear what you're saying. That's really easy. I can, I can definitely do that. That is no problem for me to do it. Then we haven't really changed at all. And we really aren't following after the word of God. God is calling us to be higher. He's calling us to be greater. He's calling us to be better. We look at passages, if you want to go ahead and flip over to Second Peter. We get Second Peter chapter 1. You look at Second Peter chapter 1, we'll just start in verse 4, just read a couple of verses here. Second Peter 1, starting verse 4. For by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises, so that by them you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. God is trying to call us up and out of the world. He's not trying to give us softballs, easy things for us to, to, to do and to apply. Because if it was, we hadn't really changed. You think about baptism itself. You think about the pledge that many of us have made here in being saved. The idea that we even talked about within the Colossians study is that body of flesh has been entirely removed from you. It's been put away from you. It's been cut off. You think about other places within Scripture. That talks about us being new creations, new creatures. Look at passages like Romans 6, being raised up with the life that's within Christ. Again, like pa passages like Colossians 2, that body of flesh being cut away. 
this idea that God is calling us to be greater, to be different, to be better. And, and, and we need to keep that in mind when we're in those difficult and those hard times of trying to apply God's word. Um, and so the last point, and, and a very short point here, is the idea of why treasure the words of Jesus. If it's so hard, if it's so difficult, if, it's so, if, if the people within even Jesus' time that he was actively trying to turn away because of the difficulty that was there, why even do it? What, why bother? Um, there's just one passage that I'd like us to read if you turn to Matthew chapter 11. Um, beyond what we were just talking about, just discussing the idea that God trying to call us up, to call us to be higher, to be greater. Um, you, and, and just the different places that we look throughout Luke and other passages where, where, where Jesus is actively turning away people, his words are challenging, they're hard to apply, they're difficult to understand. It can be very easy to forget some very important things that Jesus' ministry was when he was trying to bring. So if you look at Matthew chapter 11, starting verse 25. At that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and have revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, for this way was well-pleasing in your sight. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father. Nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Sometimes it can be very easy, to, to our shame, and really to honestly to my shame, it can be very easy for me to forget, for all of us sometimes, that Jesus' words are life, and that they are light. And every single letter, every single sentence, every single conversation that Jesus had was meant to bring us rest. It can be tiresome. It can be hard. It can be challenging. It can be fusing to apply God's word. But let's not forget the pain and the misery, the confusion, the difficulty, the challenge that we were saved from while we lived and we existed in the world. I don't know what all of us are going through. It's very hard for anybody to look at and look at somebody and know exactly what somebody's going through. I don't know if there's, there's anybody here, there are concepts within Scripture that may be challenging to you. There may be concepts of just the fact that this, this is Scripture, the fact that this can be something that is trusted, God's holy and, and, and complete and divine word. That may be a difficulty that's there. There may be teachings, doctrines that Jesus presents to us about marriage and divorce and remarriage, about salvation. There may be books within the Bible that we want to aim and we want to grow our expansion and, and, and our, our understanding of God's word. There's certain books we may just turn away from. I, for a long time, turned away from certain books. Uh, Revelation was one. Ezekiel was another one. Uh, eventually ended up teaching it here because got over that horse. But uh, the idea that you read that you read certain passages, you come to certain scriptures, and you're just like, what in the world? <laughs> I have no idea what's going on here. And you forget that that's God's word. Inspired and just like Jesus' word was meant to bring light and life, so is that word and all of God's word. When we're being challenged, when we're being confronted with change, again, like we talked before, that is God trying to call us up and out of the position that we're in. Just like Paul in Romans chapter 6 reminds the brethren that they've been saved and how God has, in Christ's death, he's done, and, and, and uniting them with Christ's death, he's done the same thing in uniting them with Christ's life to bring them out of where they were. That they were no longer uh, slaves to sin and bound to their own lusts and their own desires, but they're new creatures. They're free. Every time we're challenged by something, that is God trying to bring us out of our position, to call us higher and to be better and to be greater. 
And just like we read in Second Peter, he desires for us to partake of the same divine nature that he, his Son, and the Holy Spirit have. He desires us to be just like them. And so when it comes to challenges within God's word, there might be many of us who are faced with that. We're, we're constantly faced with those things. But that we can continue to remember the way that Mary treated the words of Jesus, the way that Mary treated the life of Jesus, especially in the difficulty of raising him. She treasured his words. She treasured those events. And like we looked at the words, she kept them carefully and continually within our heart. Let us do the same, especially when it comes to those difficult passages, those hard things, and those deep, deep convictions that we have. If there's anyone here who needs the help in the prayer of the brethren, uh, the invitation is an opportunity for, do, for, to, for you to do so, to come forward, uh, to, whether it be a call for encouragement, a call for repentance, whatever it may be, the invitation is for you. There very well may be those in this crowd who have not been saved, those who have not taken that pledge, those who have not been united not only with Christ's death, but also with his resurrection and his life eternal. The invitation is also for you. But if there's any sort of need at all, we would invite you and we would implore you and beg you to come in forward and stand and sing with us in the song invitation this morning.